start with a word of prayer. Yep. Father, we're thankful again that you have so seen it fit to create history the way you've created it and to create a so great salvation in the person of your Son. We thank you for the Holy Spirit and for his generation of the Scripture, his preservation of the Scripture, and his illumination of our hearts to the Scripture. And we ask for that illumination tonight as we seek to learn more of you in this text. In Christ's name, amen. Um, if you'll start tonight by turning to 1 John 1, 1 to 3, we're going to open the next chapter, next to the last chapter in this ongoing saga. And um, this is going to be the historical maturing of the church. So we're going to look, uh, try to condense all church history down to a chapter. So that tells you how thorough it's going to be. Um, but it's important because so many Christians I meet who really do not have a good feel for church history and what's going on in church history and the place where uh, Bible churches fit in the scheme of church history. So I think it's good for ourselves to see where, where we are in, in the process. And that God has indeed been busy. He hasn't stopped working when Jesus ascended to heaven. That wasn't the last thing he did. But he's been very active on down through the centuries. So that's what we're looking at in chapter 4. And then chapter 5, of course, will be the end of the church and the rapture. So in 1 John 1, we have a passage that defines the, the, the root of the historic church. So let's, if you'll follow in the text, verses 1, 2, and 3. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, and what we beheld and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifest, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You'll notice in verses 1 and 3, that the apostle goes to particular pains to show that revelation is historic. That is, it could be touched, it could be heard, it could be seen. Uh, all the senses, what we call the empirical senses, are listed here. In other words, revelation is not just uh, a spooky story of spirits. Uh, demons, angels. Uh, it's something that deals with real history. And verse 2, which is sort of sandwiched in between verses 1 and 3. Verses 1 and 3 are grammatically connected, and verse 2, if you diagrammed it out, you'd find it's actually a parenthesis. So verse 2 is stuck in there as an explanation and a kind of an elaboration of what he's talking about. And the life was manifest, which we have seen, and we bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life. So the question then is, when we interpret a passage like this in a text, we always like to look at the subject of the verb. And the subject here is plural, we. And so the question is, who is the we? Well, could the we mean all believers? That is, everybody who is 
talk, everybody who's believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, or is we somebody else? So, looking at these verses, we see we, and we can be inclusive or it can be exclusive. And that's a decision you have to make when you look at the text. By inclusive, we mean, we means everybody. All Christians, everybody. We. We, the author and the recipients of the epistle. That would be the exclusive sense of we. Or, he could be saying we of a smaller subset of people, and these are to be distinguished from others. And indeed, that must be the case, because in verse 3, he says, we have seen and heard and we proclaim to you. So it's clear then that we refers to at least John the Apostle and you refers to the believers in the church to which he's writing. We have heard, we have seen. Notice in verse 1, people tend to think this word beginning in verse 1 means the same thing as it does in John 1, same author. Actually, if you look at take a concordance and look up the usage of this word beginning in 1 John because remember when you look up words you always look up the near context first even if it's the same author so the context shows that beginning in this epistle refers to the beginning of the gospel not the beginning of the universe so that which was from the beginning is the gospel message we heard it we have seen with our eyes we beheld our hands have handled things concerning the Word of God, Word of Life. And we proclaim that to you. And now we have a purpose clause in verse 3. So all, all that's preceded this is, is antecedent is to set up for this purpose clause. And the purpose clause says that you, meaning the people receive the epistle, that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. So, the picture then is that whatever this message is, He's writing to these people. These people are believers. And we know they're believers, not unbelievers, because later on He says, Fathers, you know, He, he describes them, you're young ones, you have received, and so on. And so I think it's over in chapter 2 where He says that. Um, uh, well, he, so many times he says it. Verse 18 of chapter 2, he says, Children, the last hour, and so on and so forth. Um, he writes in verse 21, Not because you don't know the truth, because you do know the truth. So it's, it's being written to Christians. So now the question is, how are we to understand this fellowship that's going on? It says that fellowship, you want to have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, that We write these things to you that our joy may be complete, and so on. Now, what he is saying is that the church, believers, have fellowship with God through the message of the apostles. That's true of salvation, it's true of fellowship. We come back to the apostles because it's the apostles like John who from the very beginning had the message and they passed it on. So the, the big idea here to see when we start talking about church history is that the church 
flourishes as it responds to truth of the Word of God. And that truth of the Word of God came historically through the apostles. We want to be careful here because we're going to get into the issue of authority. So let's draw a diagram. We have, um, get my pen that works first. We have God. We have the Word of God. The Word was given to the apostles and the apostles proclaimed it to the rest of the church. So, it goes back then to the apostles. Now, this has created a problem in church history because a vast percent of historic Christians have held to the idea that you must have a continuing apostolate in order to keep the church functioning. Because doesn't it say that you have the rest of the church has fellowship with God and his word through the apostles? And thus, for example, we'll get into it later, the Eastern Church, we don't hear much about that, but we're going to cover that a little bit, um, what we call the Eastern Church, that is, Eastern Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Roman or uh, Russian Orthodox, all the, the Christianity from Italy east all broke off at one time in 1054 AD. And we, we evangelicals in America don't usually have too much contact with uh, people from the Orthodox Church. I mean, here in Baltimore, there's quite a large uh, Orthodox Church because there's a lot of Greek people here and Greeks are culturally into the Greek Orthodox Church. If we had Russian friends, uh, they'd be connected with the Russian Orthodox Church. So that whole segment of Christian Christendom, quote-unquote, they hold to the authority, of the continuing authority, of oral tradition outside of the Bible, propagated through the institution of the church. And it's their attempt to root authority into some physically present thing, some structure. Roman Catholicism does much the same thing, the church in the West, uh, except they had a little different take on it. Uh, Augustine, who was so good in one area, that is, just in, in getting justification by faith kind of established before the Reformation ever started, uh, Augustine had another downside, a bleak and black side to him, in that because he was led to the Lord while he was in the city of Rome, he wrote a lot to say that it was only through affiliation with the church at Rome that you could be saved, and Augustine actually is the father of Roman Catholic, Catholic exclusivity. So, so you had those trends. Then along come the Protestants, and the Protestants throw out the tradition completely and say, we're going to have fellowship with the Lord through his word. So when we look at a passage like 1 John here, we want to be careful what, we, what we're saying. 1 John does link fellowship with God through the apostles. But if you look at verse 1, 2, and 3, what is it about the apostles that is emphasized? It's the message of the apostles. Notice what he says. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. That which we proclaim has to be a message. 
And it's the message of the apostles that acts as the linkage between the rest of the church and God. That's why, to this day, Protestants can say the Apostles' Creed. Think about what the Apostles' Creed says. What does it say, first line? I believe in the Holy, Catholic, and what? Apostolic Church. And so people say, I mean, if you, if you said the Apostles' Creed and recited it in some Protestant circles, people would freak out and think you've gone back to Roman Catholicism. Well, that's not true. It's the interpretation of that first sentence. I believe in the Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic Church. The Protestant position is that apostolic means the message of the apostles. How do we get saved? We get saved by the gospel, right? Everybody's got saved by the gospel. Well, where'd you hear the gospel from? Well, I heard it from Joe, Joe down the street. Okay, where'd he hear it from? Well, he heard it from a pastor 30 years ago. And where did he hear it from? Well, he heard it from somewhere. He read a book or something like that. And it all goes back to this. Because even the second century people, where did they hear the message from? The apostles. So it's an apostolic message. The emphasis is in verse 3 on content. Content. So the church is apostolic, all right, but it's apostolic not because it holds a human connection necessarily with the apostles, but rather it holds to the message of the apostles. That's what makes the Holy Catholic an apostolic church. And by the way, you know the meaning of the word Catholic means universal. We could substitute the Holy Universal Apostolic Church. What do we mean by universal or Catholic? We mean that it's valid for every culture, every tongue, every nation. So that's the background. Now what we want to deal with is we're going to divide church history up for convenience sake in this one little lonely chapter we have. We're going to talk about the first stage and we're going to say this is the foundational stage of the church. The foundational or we can say the infancy of the church. Because during this period, the Lord worked in certain ways. And this period, by the way, for those of you who like history, we're going to say that the foundational or infancy part of the church, the way I'm using it, dates from uh, the, um, well, until the resurrection of Christ, 30 AD or 33, whatever the chronology you follow. Um, from 30 A.D., say, up until about 500, just after Augustine and the collapse of the Roman Empire. This is a long chunk, four or five centuries. And I know, we, you know, this, some people say, well, the infancy was really only the first hundred years and so on. That's okay. I'm just categorizing it because we only can do this in one chapter. And I've got to divide the church into big chunks. So this chunk is going to be called the foundational period of church history. And we're going to look at it because there are lessons to learn. Here's why it's good to study church history. Church history will give you a perspective on what happens to ideas when they're lived out. We'll view church history as a vast experiment. Doctrinal truths have consequences, and false doctrinal truths lead to severe consequences. And the church is actually a, a laboratory where you can go back and say, gee, if we believe this way, 
What would happen? And you can often see this happen. Sometimes it takes a century or two to work out. But bad doctrine gives bad fruit. The bad fruit may not happen right away. And that's why church history is so important. Church history is necessary because your lifetime and my lifetime may not be long enough to see the results of a bad doctrine because it takes time to work its way out. But if you go back to history, you can see it because you've got two or three or four centuries to watch what happens. And you say, well, I don't want to go that road. And that's what happens if I believe that. So that's, the, that's the, what's so powerful about church history. You see this often, for example, by just simple leadership, apart from, the, from our spiritual aspect of life. Think of how people gain experience in leadership positions. Usually good leaders are good historians. Because one person, we just don't have enough days in our lifetime to experience enough to give us a maturity in every area. So we have to borrow that maturity from somebody else who went there. That's why God designed families. That's why children are supposed to listen to parents. Because the parents have had a lot more experience, a lot more failures than the kids have. You know, that's the difference between the older person and the younger person. The older person sinned 8,000 more times. And the point is that we know what happens. You do this, this happens. And of course, you know, the kids are immortal and they think that therefore they can learn it all by themselves. And so they do the same thing. And you sit there and say, oh, come on. You know, and but so did our parents do that with us. So, you know, it's an ever-ending cycle. Church history, however, is a teacher in that regard. Church history doesn't necessarily show you truth authoritatively like the scripture does, but it shows you historic cause and effect. So what we want to do is concentrate in this chapter first on this infancy period and see what we can learn about the great doctrines of the faith and why in the infancy of the church God did certain things. There's a nostalgia among many Christians. We want to get back to the first century church. Frankly, I don't want to get back to the first century church. First century church wasn't that great. If it had been that great, God would have just raptured it right away, and that's the end of church history. The first century church had wonderful things in it. Don't get me wrong. They had some wonderful people. They had some wonderful experiences with the Holy Spirit. They had some wonderful missionary work that went on. So there are some very delightful, edifying, and powerful things that were done in that generation because the Holy Spirit worked his thing in that generation. And we can't dismiss it. We can't knock it. We can't ridicule it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. However, the church had to learn a lot of things historically. The first century church was not, for example, was not really knowledgeable of who Jesus Christ really was. Now that may strike you as very odd, but it wasn't until the end of this period, close to 500, that the church really thought through who Jesus was. You say, what? Yes. And you know what the motivation to think through who Jesus was? What caused them to have to agonize about who Jesus Christ really was? Heretics. Heresy. False teachers. The wolves had to snip and bite at the back legs of the sheep before the sheep would move. And that's always true of church history. One of the first lessons you learn about church history. We learned it in the book of Acts. 
The church didn't move out of Jerusalem until the church was kicked out of Jerusalem. The church didn't go out into the world until the church was kicked out into the world. Had to be persecuted, had to be mauled, had to be ridiculed, had to be challenged. And that's the story of church history. Until the heretics started denying the deity of Jesus Christ, the church didn't have a clue. Intuitively, they kind of felt it, but they couldn't articulate it. They couldn't get out in the halls of debate. And it took one man, actually a bishop in Alexandria. This guy was a fantastic person. He's called Athanasius. And Athanasius was the guy who finally stood up. He started at first as a deacon and eventually became a bishop. And it was Athanasius to whom we can be very thankful today for getting up as a minority position articulating the Trinity and getting that straight, he helped the hypostatic union doctrine get straight. So this guy we owe an awful lot to, and he also helped straighten out the canon, which we'll get into tonight. So he was one of the stars of the verse, and he was surrounded by hundreds of people that fought him hammer, tooth, and nail. Okay, so let's look at the notes on page 86. We're going to start the first thing, which we've already basically done in the previous chapter. The first thing that we notice about the, this foundational period is that Christianity splits from Judaism. So, if this is Judaism, Christianity is ejected. Now, that's going to cause something to happen to Judaism. So, as Christianity is ejected and has a distinct entity, now it becomes a problem for Judaism so Judaism takes a counter role and becomes officially anti-Jesus. So at this point, because Judaism now has to debate with these Christians, who by the way at this point are all Jews themselves, so Jew against Jew over this issue of Jesus or Yeshua. And Judaism has to take the position that this is a violation of historic Judaism. Historic Judaism, they say, is monotheistic. And to say that the Messiah himself is God is to divide the one God. And so you have Judaism take on what we will call a very uh, tight or what we call is solitary monotheism. It did not take that position prior to the time of Jesus. It was very loose in that sense. And you can read, uh, when we went through the Doctrine of the Trinity, remember we went into Isaiah, passage in Isaiah talks about the Trinity. Um, you have the, the Jehovah, you have the one who Jehovah sent, and his spirit. And so there's this, this looseness inside Judaism before Jesus. But when Jesus hits the scene, and there's this horrifying split inside the, the congregation of the Jews, now you have this rupture happen, Judaism changes its theology in response to Christian Jews and Christianity, of course, separates from Israel. And something you'll notice here about church history, you always have an overreaction. Christians always do this, always have. People do this and do always have. So, by 500, this rupture had become so thorough that the church didn't want anything to do with any prophetic interpretation that gave a future to whom? The Jew. 
So that's why by 500, you have amillennialism develop in the church. Because to be premillennial, that is, the millennium, Jesus is going to come and set up the millennial kingdom, with whom? Israel. Well, that gives Israel, that says that those Jews out there have a future. You bet. And so, amillennialism developed in part of this thing going on. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Each side wanted to define itself from the other, and so we, we have this problem come. Don't want to get near you with a ten-foot pole. And that historically took three or four hundred years to work out. But it was a deflection, and unfortunately, it was something that contaminated Christian theology for some time. Back years ago, there was a Hebrew uh, Christian rabbi in New York Rabbi Leopold Cohn, who started the organization we know today as the American Board of Missions to the Jews. And Leopold Cohn wrote a track, very interesting one. I've never, I haven't seen it in 40 years, but it, back in the 50s and 60s, you saw a lot of that track, at least around New York City, you saw a lot of it. And it was a little track he made and said, what it has cost the church to withhold the gospel from the Jews. His whole point was, that if the church, instead of reacting this way, had tried to win the Jews to Christ, kept on evangelizing instead of separating from them, and they had articulate Jews become Christians who would come in and be theologians in the church, it would have straightened out a lot of theology in the church. Because the Jew is coming out of a culture that was loyal to the book. The Jew understands his Old Testament. He has those categories already built in. And that would have made theology a lot clearer for the church. But the church didn't do that. And so it's wallowed around up until about 1830, not having any future for Israel. Reformers theology, reformers never got this straight either. Of course, we can't blame them. They had enough problems in their day. But amillennialism continued down through history and hasn't, wasn't purged out of some areas at least until the mid-19th century. It's only 150 years since it's really come back into its own again. Well, that's just a preliminary thing. And that's this first thing, a sense of distinct identity. So that's the first thing that happened. That is already happening by the end of the book of Acts. That's why Acts ends, in fact, turn to Acts at the end, and you'll see, see the signal of this happening. Progressively, as you read through the book of Acts, you'll see turning, this turning away. And in Acts chapter, the last chapter, um, look at the verse 28 of Acts 28. There's how, that's the flavor the book of Acts leaves you with. Let it be known to you, therefore, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And the idea is, he's just in verse 26 and 27, you can see he's quoted that Isaiah passage that Jesus quoted also. And with that quote in Acts 28, you have the second invitation to Israel basically terminated. What I mean by this is that if you diagram the ministry of Jesus Christ, he has a crescendo, and then halfway through every one of the four Gospels, he restarts pulling back, pulling back, 
talking to the disciples more, talking to public less. Why is that? Because the public has rejected the Lord Jesus. And at that peak in his ministry, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, right here, he quotes the same passage that's quoted right here. They both refer to an Isianic prophecy that God will harden the people by giving them more of the Word of God. See, that's how God hardens hearts. The Word of God softens hearts, but it also hardens hearts. That's why when Pharaoh rejected, what did God do? He gave him some more evidence, didn't he? Sent Moses in again to teach him the Word of God. And what did he do? Pharaoh rejected. So he goes out, sends Moses back again to Pharaoh. Pharaoh rejects again. Every time Pharaoh is rejecting, 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 he's hardening his heart. And what's happening? He's getting more of the Word of God, more of the Word of God, more of the Word of God, and more of the Word of God. So actually, it's the Word of God under the Holy Spirit that hardens hearts. Not usually covered, but that's what, that's what goes on. Well, the same thing happens in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts... You have the early crescendo. You have Peter's great sermon inviting the nation once again to accept the Messiah. And then you have the persecution set in and the rest of the book of Acts goes down. And Acts ends like this with that same citation from the same passage of the Old Testament announcing that God has hardened the nation. And the one epistle out here that follows this up is, of course, the epistle of the Hebrews when he warns the people, you know, keep it up, folks. And you're going to have a little problem here. Don't go back to Judaism. So, this first thing we want to say is the church has a, a distinct identity. There's a separation culturally and socially away from the Jewish community. Christians began not to be worshiping as a sort of a subset of the synagogue around the Mediterranean area. They had their own community that they began to develop. Now we come to the second feature of the infancy. And that's the one we want to spend time on this week and next week because it concerns the authority of the church. Where does the church get its authority? And we therefore have to deal with the canon. By the canon we mean not C-N-N-O-N, but C-O-N. Canon in the sense that it's used to speak of, of, of legal documents. The canon is the officially designated list of the books that are considered to be the Word of God. So you can think of the canon as a list. Now the question is, where did the list come from? Well, the Jews had a list of the Old Testament. And we'll get into that. And then the church had to make up a list for what writings they thought were apostolic and what writings weren't apostolic. So the list here is going to involve two things. It's going to involve the Old Testament list and going to involve the New Testament list. And until this list is defined, then the source material for doctrine isn't defined. That's why this list is so important. Well. You'll notice the section in the notes on page 86 is entitled The Completion and Recognition of the New Testament Canon. Not just the completion, because physically, by the time the apostles all died, the canon existed in the sense that the scriptural books 
of the canon existed physically. Right? They weren't written later. So, all the material physically exists by the time the apostles are dying. What doesn't exist is a universal recognition of their existence and their authority. That had to come and that had to take some time to get to. So there's two actions here. There's the completion action and then there's the slow recognition that, yeah, gee, there's the letter that Paul wrote to so-and-so church. We better, better list that. Now, when the canon, we say the canon closed, what do we mean by that? One is, the next paragraph there is the closing of the canon. Now, if you look, turn to the end of the Bible and look at the book of Revelation. Look at the last section of the book of Revelation. Now, and on, on uh, verse 18, there's a curse attached to the book of Revelation. It says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Pretty serious text. And it's interesting, the New Testament ends with that. That's how the New Testament ends. Don't mess with the text. That's the message. Leave it alone. Don't add to it. Don't take it away. Now, of course, the interpretation of verse 18 refers to the literal book of Revelation. But what I'm saying to you is that in the providence of God, the book of Revelation is the last book tacked onto that list. And it's something maybe that applies to more than just this one book of Revelation. But it has an overarching warning that the revelatory process is finished. Now you guys preserve it and leave it alone. That introduces us to an idea about the Bible. And it's one that we need to keep in the back of our mind because if we do keep this idea in the back of our minds, it will resolve this issue of authority and where we go for authority. And that is that those of you who were here back several years ago when we were going through the Old Testament, we're going to go back there in just a moment, you remember me saying that Revelation is historical, it's personal, it's prophetic, and so on. What we mean by saying that the revelation of the Bible is historical is that if you take a timeline and go down through church history, it is not true, or through human history, not church history, it is not true that revelation is constant. That there are times and places where revelation is very intense and then there's a period of the silence of God. Uh, if you'll peek ahead in the notes that were handed out tonight, there's a diagram I put in there to show this. We'll, we'll come back to this diagram, but since I'm making such a point now, it would be good to look ahead. On page 89, you'll notice that there are three great eras of public revelation in the Bible. It is not true that this revelation was continued. If you did a frequency chart, took a graph, 
graft it by time, and graft the number of revelatory events, it doesn't come out in a straight line. It comes out like this. There's these three peak eras. And those three peak eras have something in common. And one of the things that the first era and the third era have, that is the first column across that table seven, and the third column across the table, is that they culminated in the generation of a set of documents, right? What, when Moses finished, what were the documents that were left finally? What, did he, what documents did he bring into existence historically? The Pentateuch, or the Jews called the Torah. And when he finished this thing, it was the law for the land of Israel. It was the Constitution. And if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, you'll see a remarkable little text there. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. As Moses finishes, and what was the last book of the Pentateuch? Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, right? Deuteronomy was the fifth and last book of the Torah. So notice what is said at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor shall you take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Doesn't that sound familiar? You see, it's the same thing, that when these eras of revelation end, and when the revelation has been captured in a document, you're supposed to keep the document and don't mess with it. So, the canon, there's a lot of ideas here, and what I'm trying to do is gel these together for you so you can see that they're all kind of one ball of wax. The idea of historical revelation means that God does not publicly reveal himself to each and every saint down through church history. He does not do that. That's not the way God works. He doesn't continually give miracles. He doesn't continually give revelation. He gives revelation a whole spurt and stops and scripturates. We go for centuries. Boom, 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 boom. All of a sudden, a lot more revelation comes out. It's inscripturated, and then we go for centuries. In other words, you can look on human history as a time when God speaks and a time when he is silent. There are whole centuries when God is silent and doesn't have any public revelation. That is seen prior to the New Testament when, if you read the book, which we'll talk about a little bit, is the first and second Maccabees, You'll see during the Maccabean Revolt, the Jews had a problem. They, they had this, this problem of desecration of sacred things, and they didn't know what to do. And so the, the Jewish people in the book of Maccabees saying, hey, we don't have a prophet here to tell us what to do, so we're just going to bury the stuff and leave it here. Because they dared not mess with it, because, I mean, they didn't have a prophet, and they knew, by the way, the fact they didn't have a prophet tells you they knew what a prophet was like because they recognized they didn't have a prophet. So, all down through history, you have this oscillation of revelation and silence. Revelation and then silence. Why do I make such a point about that? Here's why. You'll hear critics say that, well, if God is real, how come he hasn't spoken since the time of Jesus? And by that, they mean speaking, you know, historically. 
publicly. Well, then you'll have some people say, well, I, he has. He's, he's spoken to me, he's spoken to Joe, and he's spoken to... Wait a minute. He leads Christians. But the leading of the Holy Spirit today is not the same thing as the revelation in New Testament times. That was when Scripture was being written. That was when it was infallible revelation. That stopped. That's not happening anymore. There is no such thing as that. If it were, Revelation 23 would be written. No Revelation 23 being written. So the feature that we're involved with now as we get into this canon issue is that there are certain characteristics that accompany history and it's true of Israel and it's true also of the church. So go back to page 86. One of the features of the canon we want to say is that canon tends to close whenever the period of public revelation starts to shut down. It seems the type and format of the last words of God are what we call apocalyptic style. For example, let's go back in, in, the, in our history of the Old Testament. You'll see this come out. If I did bring my Old Testament slide here, which I hope I did, and I don't think I did. Um, but we've gone over it enough. You don't need the slide. Um, remember the one that I have with the events and I start out with the call of Abraham, and then we go to the Exodus, and then we go to Mount Sinai, and then we go to conquest and settlement, and then we go to David, the ascension of David. That was the ascent. That was when the revelation was going, Israel was being built up. And then it culminated in what era? The era, the golden era of Solomon. And then after Solomon, what do we have? The decline of the kingdom. Then we have the fall of the kingdom. Then we have the exile. Now, in that decline of the kingdom period, there was a book written that is very similar to the book of Revelation. And what is that book? You'll never hear sermons on it. I've never heard a sermon out of it. Book of Ezekiel. And the reason that you don't hear sermons about it is because it's a very, very difficult book to study. And the reason that it's very difficult to study is it's apocalyptic literature just like Revelation, is apocalyptic literature. What do you mean by apocalyptic literature? Apocalyptic literature is very symbolic. It's not like the prophets. Apocalyptic literature is not written to castigate the people of God so much as it is written to encourage them to persevere because they're going to face a lot of hard times and apocalyptic literature's message is that hard times are coming but God has the final victory so persevere apocalyptic literature has as its function to generate hope hope that is rooted on the promises of God apocalyptic literature usually doesn't have as a format a call for repentance which is interesting Prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so on are forcing and confronting the people, repent of your sin. But it seems that when apocalyptic literature is written, the time for repentance is gone. It's too late. And so now it's just the, the end times to look forward to. So when the Old Testament was kind of on the decline, when the Israel was falling toward the exile, yes, the Old Testament canon had not been closed, but nevertheless, in this period of decline, there came forth this book of Ezekiel. 
There also came forth another book that's, called, that's similar to apocalyptic literature, and it's a section in Isaiah called The Little Apocalypse. And I don't have the chapter, I think it's chapter 24. But there's a section in Isaiah, only about a chapter or two, that has the same style, this apocalyptic style to it. But Isaiah ministered as the kingdom was declining. And then, of course, another apocalyptic book in the Bible is the book of Daniel. And that's full of symbols and dreams and visions. Uh, another section where you see apocalyptic literature is in the post-exilic prophet Zechariah. And there he writes with certain style, the apocalyptic style. Now, something to notice about the style of apocalyptic literature, it always features a vision that the author has, and he doesn't know what to do with it, so there's usually an interpreting angel somewhere associated with it that explains at least some of the rudiments of this, this vision. Remember Daniel? And he's talking to an angel. John on Patmos is talking to an angel. Ezekiel sees these visions and they're explained to him. So those are loose features of this thing, this style, this kind of formatted literature. And as again, to review, the two big ones in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel, and in the New Testament, Book of Revelation. And it, these books tend to close out periods of intense revelation. So it's no thing accident then that the New Testament, when it was closing out and the founding period was over, that lo and behold, a book in the apocalyptic life, uh, apocalyptic format was generated. And you say, well, wait a minute, you're saying that the apocalyptic literature was generated when things were closing down, the church was just beginning. Yes, but who is the custodian of scripture? The church or Israel? Let's turn to Romans 9. Romans, Romans 3 is a good one. Romans 9 is also, but let's just turn to Romans 3. If there's ever be Jews are going to generate scripture, guys, you better get it out now because things are going to start separating here. So again, this ties together. Apocalyptic literature then closes the canon. I've already tell, talked about on page 87 the next feature and that is that historically interrupted revelation requires a canon. We're not going to get through this tonight but this is the second thing you want to have in your mind that when a canon becomes necessary because the prophets die off it's precisely the absence of prophets that cause the need for a canon. Now, Moses, we just got through in Deuteronomy saying, I'm writing this down and I don't want you to change the text. Just leave it. Moses also said that there would be prophets arising after him, but not in his generation. Prophets after him. And he gave certain instructions in the book of Deuteronomy. At that point, of course, the writing prophets began to add to Moses' writing, didn't they? They added, what was the first book after the Pentateuch? Joshua. And then what was the next one? Judges. And the guy who wrote Judges probably was Samuel. Samuel did an analysis. 
because Sam is the prophet who has to deal with this monarchy thing, and so he's going to explain why we have to have a monarchy. And he wrote, the, he or his school apparently put together the Book of Judges to show what the historical record was. So, when we speak of historically interrupted revelation, the revelation stops, the prophets die off, there's got to be the Word of God made available. And so when that happens, Scripture sets up a canon. Now, if you turn to John 14, Jesus forecast or prophesied that this was precisely what the early church would have to do. It would have to generate a document. He didn't exactly say it as a document, but in John 14, he said, when I send the Holy Spirit, he will lead you into all truth. Verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all I said to you. Now, verse 26 sometimes is sloppily taken to refer to every believer. Why, from the last clause in that verse, must that not refer to every believer, but to the apostolic generation? Look carefully at the last clause in verse 26. Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Jesus spoke to one generation of the church, the founding generation. And these guys were like you and me. They didn't remember everything that Jesus said. They forgot. But what is the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to bring it to their minds. What for? So it can be inscripturated. So they will preach it, and then it can be written. Now this is going to lead to a problem. And the problem is the problem that comes out of this period that wasn't settled for over 500 years. Well, it wasn't settled for 900 years. It still hasn't been settled in some quarters. And that's the difference between oral and written tradition. The question now is that when the apostles went around they would preach. You might be in the congregation, I might be in the congregation, I would hear. I heard Paul. What would I do? I'd go out and preach. I'd share that message. Other people would become Christians and then we might have a local church in Timbuktu someplace. And we don't have any scripture. All we got is if we can borrow a Torah somewhere from one of the local synagogues, that's all we got. We don't have anything else. So how is the Word of God communicated then? Orally. Oral tradition. What's the problem with oral tradition, however? It can get corrupted. And so the problem is that oral tradition becomes a, a, a tool that unless the Holy Spirit is constantly correcting the tool, oral tradition can, can become corrupted. Now there's one verse in the scripture that has been a bone of contention over this oral and written tradition argument. Obviously, what we're dealing here with, again, is the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox on one side of this issue, Protestants on the other side of the issue. And the issue is, what is the authority of oral tradition versus the written tradition? And the crux passage that comes up in every one of these debates is found in 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to stop there tonight. We're going to go there, we're going to discuss some things and come back to it next week. 2 Thessalonians. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Roman Catholic apologists will go to 2 Thessalonians 2.15 to justify their view that the church has authority by virtue of its preservation of oral tradition. So they'll take you to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. So they argue that, see, right there in your Protestant Bible, you're looking at oral tradition that is authoritative and apostolic. It's apostolic oral tradition. So, therefore, as an apostolic oral tradition, it must have authority, and it's on authority on the par with Scripture. So, what then do the Protestants respond to that challenge of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15? The response is that the content of both the oral and the written tradition is the same. Obviously, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 wouldn't make any difference, wouldn't, be, wouldn't make sense, if the oral tradition logically contradicted the written tradition, would it? So the oral tradition that existed at the time of the apostles, the oral equals the written. It was identical to it. And you could tell because you could check it. You could go back and check whether the oral tradition was the same as the written tradition. Now, we have the written part of the tradition in the New Testament epistles. So that's why we can go back and we can identify whether oral tradition is true or not. Now, this shouldn't be so hard, and we have to get away from this being a big apologetic problem here. When you were led to the Lord, well, most, I guess most of you were led to the Lord through somebody witnessing something like that, not by reading. Some of us were led to the Lord by reading Scripture. But if you were led to the Lord by someone who talked to you, were you led to the Lord by oral or written tradition? You were led to the Lord by oral tradition. But what was saving about that oral conversation that you had? Was it saving because it was oral? Or was it saving because the oral tradition fit the scripture? The oral tradition fit the scripture. So yeah, you could have been saved because someone vocally led you to the Lord, told you the gospel message, and the oral tradition came to you, but the saving power of that oral message was because it lined up with the authoritative written message. And the question, see, the Protestants raised was by the 15th century, the oral tradition had a lot of crud in it, indulgences, this going on, buying the way to heaven, and doing this, and 8,000 good works for that, and some this and that, whoa. So the Protestants had to say, wait a minute here. The church is totally corrupted. Where do we go to find what? Going back to 1 John 1 that we started the lesson with tonight. How do you have fellowship with God? Through the apostolic revelation. Where's the apostolic revelation? You know? Hey, where is it? It got buried. So that's why the Protestants went back to the only living source, which was the written documents that were known to be apostolic and said, therefore, we won't build our doctrine on anything other than that which can be verified as apostolic, and the only thing that can be verified as apostolic is the canon. The church has shown itself unable to preserve oral tradition by its behavior. 
Therefore, oral tradition will not stand and oral tradition will be in, in, usurped by the position of written tradition. Now, as a supplement to this, think about how many times when Je would Jesus respond by saying, it is written. You know, see how many times he responded, it is written that. Now, why did Jesus use written tradition? Here was one person who could have possibly used oral tradition, right? If there was one guy that could use oral tradition. But why did he keep reverting to written tradition? Oh, now we have a precedent, don't we? Jesus himself utilized written tradition. Jesus built his case on the written word of God, the canon of the Old Testament. Now let's go to... The New Testament passages show the same thing. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 4 6. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that in us you may learn what? not to exceed what is written. Ooh. See? You better believe the Protestant reformers use this verse. Don't exceed what is written. If it's not written, then it has no authority. You need not obey it. Whether the church can say all it wants to about oral traditions, but we don't care about oral traditions. We care about the written tradition. Don't exceed that which is written. Let's turn to Acts 17, verse 11. This is a one that we, you've often heard Bible teachers use. It's not some new revelation here. In Acts 17.11, Now these at Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with eagerness, and how? Examining the scriptures to see whether these things be so. What was their criteria of judging truth from falsehood? Written tradition. So, We've run out of time tonight, but we'll stop right here. You see the role then of the importance of the canon. If the canon weren't defined, we've got a little problem here because we don't know where to go for the written tradition. And make a long story short, you're going to see that the church for four or five hundred years, well, no, I keep going back to it. wasn't really until the Protestant Reformation that that canon, believe it or not, of the Old Testament got straightened out. Imagine that. It took 1,500 years to argue about what books were in the Old Testament. You know where they could have found out in 15 centuries? Gone down the block to the nearest synagogue. Didn't have to wait 1,500 years. Go down to Rabbi so-and-so. Yeah, he's not maybe not a Christian, but go down and ask him, hey, what did you Jews use for canon? The Jewish canon. 
that's why when we hit the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Reformers went right back to the Jewish canon. If you open a Catholic Bible today, you will find extra books in there. Apocryphal literature. And next time we'll go in to tell you the story of how that got started. But those books is where you learn to pray for the dead. You don't learn that out of the canonical Old Testament. You learn it out of the apocryphal literature. And so it is that we have a struggle in church history. I'm not trying to antagonize people here, folks. It's just that it's a search for the authority for the truth. Where do we, what do we use as our standard and our criteria? Father, we thank you for the preservation of Scripture. We thank you for our salvation and for our time together that we can, in this country at least for a while longer, enjoy a peace, peaceable assembly, and a time when we can pray and have fellowship and have relative freedom together. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, um, our chief, two chief questioners aren't here today. What are we going to do? Ah, oh, good. Substitute. <laughs> I don't think so, uh, Dave. Well, purgatory is an idea that does come partly out of the apocalyptic, uh, not out of the apocalyptic, those, those extra books. Um, apocrypha, a different word. Um, not centrally, but those ideas float around there. Um, but when you get back to the, the fundamental... First of all, in, in answering your question about repetitions, um, that has always been true, I think, down across the centuries, all the way back to probably Adam and Eve, the tendency to repeat you know, things over and over. Um, I guess it can be all right. It's just that when, when I think because I repeat something 52 times, there's something meritorious in the mere repetition. I might repeat scripture to myself. In fact, those of us who have memorized verses will sit there and you know, write in a three-by-five card and you'll repeat it to yourself 150 times. But you don't think of that's the process of trying to memorize something so you can have it in your head to use. Um, nothing meritorious in and of itself. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, he talks about vain praying and uh, talks about doing it out in public to impress people. And you know that's when he said, go into, your, into a closet, quiet place, and, and just talk to God privately. You don't have to get out there and be a showman about it. Um, and the Pharisees apparently were doing something like that in Jesus' day by going through what he called vain repetitions. Now, I, I don't want to blame somebody for just, you know, repeating something a lot. Um, it's their choice. It's just, I think, the attitude that goes with it that's the problem. 
went on front into people where um, they take those verses so seriously about not adding or taking anything away that when they get to doctrine um, uh, like predestination or election, they can't understand it. They just they just stop right there and refuse to go any further or even try to figure it out to some degree because they feel like they're going to be adding something that shouldn't be there. And also, the other side of the point is, when do you, this is almost a question of sort of guidance, when do you think that sitting in and creatively thinking about the scriptures, like imagining what heaven is, even though we know that no eye or, you know, you can't think of it, you know, because it's just so way out. At what point are you kind of coming dangerously close to that scripture that says that you shouldn't be adding? Well, good question, Donna. The question is, when using creative writing or creative visualization and other things, are we in danger of adding to the scripture? I think let's go back and look at the question a little bit more before we try and answer it. And that is, what are we adding or subtracting from? What are we adding to or subtracting? What is the issue here in, those, in that verse we read? Adding and subtracting from what? The corpus of scripture. The inspired word of God. So you would add to the word of God if you were to say that whatever it is you were imagining or whatever it is you were writing was an authoritative word of God and it should be added to the canon. Would you dare, therefore, to write chapter 23 of the book of Revelation? So he would say, this is the word of God. You would just give it such great authority. Yeah. That would be adding to the scripture. Well, then it would be interesting then to look at the Mormon church and see that they very carefully went through the pain to have a prophet and to do oh, what yeah. they did. Absolutely. To the book of Mormon to have the written Absolutely. revelation to the, the Mormon, Book of Mormon and the Mormon Church is very shrewdly counterfeit. Remember, to be a counterfeit, you have to be shrewd. And they were knowledgeable enough to know that the claim for the Book of Mormon could not sail unless the claim for a canonical scripture were backed up by another claim, which would be that the prophetic line had opened up again. So, in that sense, it's very cleverly constructed so that it's not just a book plopped out there, but it's a book that is supposedly generated by a prophet, which allows us then, and think about this, because Islam is much the same way. Uh, you can't get the Quran without what? Prophet. Remember? Muhammad's name is the prophet. So, all of the uh, counterfeits to biblical revelation in order to be halfway looking like the Bible have to always do something like the Bible which is to assert that this book whatever it be, be Mormon or the Quran or something else it has to be generated by whom? a prophet see that's what makes it so much like a counterfeit but the moment they see they have to do that to make it look real but the moment they make that claim, they open up a door of criticism back to themselves. See, it's a two-way door. If they are asserting the fact that the prophetic institution has once again come into being such and such a powerful way 
that that new institution of profit, or profits, plural, has come into existence historically and therefore has written this new book, Book X, then they have said they respect the biblical sequence of first prophet, then scripture, right? Because they try to counterfeit it. So they're going back to a biblical picture. First you have a prophet, then you have the written word. Ah, but where did they get that pattern from? They got that pattern from the Bible. So we go back to the Bible and we turn to a passage of Scripture that talks about the institution of a prophet. And we go back, for example, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And because this is where that idea that you need a prophet to write book X comes from. And in, uh, in Deuteronomy, uh, let's see, yes, Deuteronomy 18, verse 14. Here's the canonical source of the idea that the counterfeiters are using. So we go back to the scripture that they're using, although they don't want to acknowledge it, they're building their foundation on this center of the scripture. So we go back to the center of scripture and we say, oh, that's nice to know that you need a prophet to write scripture. And why do we have to do that? Well, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 14, it says, For those nations which you shall dispossess, pagans, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners, but as for you... The Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Now, this is to Israel. But here's where the idea of a prophet comes. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like whom? Who's me? Moses. Moses becomes the archetype of all prophets. Ah, you will write a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you will listen to him. By the way, a prophet from your countrymen. Was Joseph Smith a Jew? No. Oh. Well, Luke is writing under the auspices of Paul, so it really doesn't make much difference. Just like, for example, if you go to Romans, Romans, apparently Paul didn't write Romans either. He dictated it to somebody, and his name is at the end of the book of Romans. So you have what was called the amanuensis, the man who wrote, wrote but the content of what they wrote was you see it in Jeremiah? Jeremiah dictated it to a scribe, a scribe called Baruch, I believe it was. And Baruch just took notes on, on uh, Jeremiah and wrote it. But it was Jeremiah was the guy who authorized that writing, so it's under prophetic counsel, even though they didn't write it. And, um, so anyway, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and so forth and so on. And I will raise up a prophet from their countrymen like you, and I will put, look at this, verse 18. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak all that I command him. And it shall come to pass that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Okay? Prophetic mouthpiece. Yes? Did God reveal Genesis to Moses? Did he rely on... Oh, he probably relied on writings. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because, remember, Moses, when he, when he compiled 
the Pentateuch. Uh, he was using, it appears he was using sources because he uses the word Toledot. These are the generations of, and it's a formula that you see Genesis. It looks like he got those from somewhere. Now, where he got them from, we don't know. Oh, there were great oral traditions. But I think, Jenny, you have to be careful even there. We learn in our schooling about proto-history and people were oral before they were written. We better be careful about accepting that premise. I'll tell you why. Think back biblically, if you were to correctly analyze ancient history, what great event led to probably the destruction of written language anyway? Tower of Babel. When God confused the time, if there had been a written language prior, and I think there was, and I think I know what the language was. I mean, it's not me, it's everybody has looked at it, says it's a pro, the early language is this proto-Semitic language. So, and the reason for that is because of various technicalities that happen in Genesis. But the point is that when we are learning in school that, ooh, the alphabet didn't develop until later, and this and that, and first you saw a cuneiform, and then you saw a pictographic, and then man evolved, and somebody invented the alphabet, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, that's just a false view of language to start with. So the questions that come out of a false view themselves are skewed questions. We have to say, we don't believe and I don't accept the fact that when you, ha when you go back in history and see cuneiform, and you see pictographic writing, that may be nothing other than a manifestation of the confusion that was going on and people to communicate across the, the uh, ruptured mess that occurred at Babel, the only way they could communicate was with pictographs to draw pictures of what they meant. So the cuneiform, ironically, the pictographic languages that are supposed to the precursors of, of written alphabetic language may need nothing more than recovery techniques from Babel. So that's how you see, again, how twisted these questions become. You try to answer a question, and then you realize, wait a minute, I haven't formulated the question correctly because the question itself is granted. But I'll get to you, Lynn, but just let me finish this, this point in, in, the, in the prophetic thing here in, in chapter 18 because the false religions have to acknowledge to justify the, the appearance of an authoritative scripture, they have to root it on a prophet. And I'm saying that, think of the logic now. They're using a biblical picture. But if you go back to the biblical picture, which is Deuteronomy 18, where you see the whole institution of the prophet explained, and look at how it concludes. Verse 19, it says, God's going to require it of you. Okay, well, if you were sitting there listening to this, what would you be your next thought? Well, wait a minute. If Joe says he's a prophet, how am I going to tell if Joe's a genuine prophet or not, right? So guess what the next verse is. The prophet who will speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him, or which shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Ooh, ooh, capital punishment. Well, you can't kill somebody with rocks, which was the way they killed people then, without a trial. So now the question comes, when you go to trial, what's your law of evidence? Because you've got to decide whether the person accused of being a false prophet is a genuine prophet or not. How is the court to decide the case? It's all here. You just have to read the text. And you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? 
The answer, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come to pass or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. And another test is given parallel to this one, Deuteronomy 13. So, the long and the short of this is that once a claim of prophetic lineage is made by a false religion, all you have to do is extend the thing, just like a judo punch. Somebody punches, you take it, and you take it further than they want. They want to assert a prophetic heritage. She says, okay, we'll assert a prophetic heritage. Let's go back to where the prophet started. And it says here that it's got to be theologically connected to Mosaic theology. Hmm. Is Joseph Smith theologically connected and logically consistent with Moses? I don't think so. Is the Quran theologically connected to Moses? I don't think so. So they fail in the fact that on one hand they're trying to talk about we've got to have a prophet, we've got to have a prophet, we've got to have a prophet. But then on the other hand, the prophetic line doesn't connect with the root. So there's an internal logical contradiction, that's where you hang them. Yes? Would, would purgatory... Uh, you talk about as a prophet? A prophet. No, I, I don't think so, Lynn, because purgatory as a doctrine preceded the papal infallibility by centuries. Uh, oddly enough, the Pope... I don't, I'm not sure of that particular heritage, but I know that purgatory has been around a long time. Um, ironically, the declaration of the infallibility of the Pope didn't happen until the last two, three hundred years. The infallibility of the Pope was not even declared in the Reformation. It's interesting. Wasn't he, wasn't he supposed to uh, begin with the Yes, that's the idea. But that doctrine of infallibility of the Pope is a recent one. It's not, a, it's not one that goes back. They're still standing on They're still standing on apostolic succession. But by apostolic succession, they meant the passing of this oral tradition. And it, it started off good. I mean, I, I disagree that Peter was the first pope. But think about the early church without the New Testament. Okay? Put, put yourself back there in a mind experiment. Here you are. You're sitting there in uh, 120 A.D. John's dead. All, Matthew's dead. Mark's dead. You've got nobody to go back to. Who would you feel closest to going back to? Somebody that studied under those guys? I would. I'd gravitate to somebody that knew John. So there was a tendency, it's easy to explain how it got started, it was just a loyalty about the guys that were hanging around with the apostles. And so you would want to be near them. And as long as that connection was close, you were pretty safe. What happened was, by, by the third or fourth generation, you're already getting heresies coming in and everything else. And, and that was precisely why the church decided to go back and dig out where the writings are. Because they faced this big mess that, well, Joe, he, he's only four generations from John and he's teaching this. And we've got Sam over here and he's teaching something else. Well, who's right? 
And so they said, well, I'm, the only way we can find out who's right is we've got to go back and see if we can scrape. Didn't, uh, didn't uh, Paul write something to the Corinthians? Go back to the library, see if you can find that one. And that's what happened. They dug all this stuff out, and that's how we got the Bible. But again, remember what I said you learned about church history? The church doesn't do a thing until it gets kicked in the ass. That's you know, theology 101 from Charles Plough. The uh, point is that it, nothing happens until you get, it, the church gets forced to do something. And we wouldn't have a New Testament if the heretics hadn't come along and challenged the church. And we got forced to say, all right, we've got to settle this one. And we're going to go back to the apostles. And that was led of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bore witness that, look, it can't be the Holy Spirit teaching this and the Holy Spirit teaching that. And we've got to have this straight here. So go back to who was it that introduced us to Christ? It was the apostles. So there was a process that happened in that early period of time of collection. And it was slow because, you know, some books didn't almost make it. And I bet you can guess one or two of them. James was one that had a real problem. In fact, Martin Luther threw it out. He, did, he thought it was a fake book. And uh, as late as the Reformation, because he got so irritated at James chapter 2. And then the book of Revelation is missing from some lists. The book of Hebrews, 2 John, 3 John, 2 Peter. Those books, are, there are quite a few books that were late in getting collected. And that doesn't mean they weren't around. You know how we know they were around? Because there was one guy, I think it was Arrhenius or something I, I quote in here, uh, he gives us a list, and he's only dated around 120 or some 130, and he's got the whole New Testament listed, so we know it existed then. It was just that a lot of people had difficulty accepting the authority of certain of the books. And some of it wasn't because of the content of the book. Some of it was because they felt they really didn't know whether that book was written by a real apostle or not. And there were other books that competed with these. Uh, the Didache, for example. Uh, First Clement. Um, these were writings written very soon after the apostles. And they circulate around the churches. And sometimes they're even listed as New Testament books. So there was just a little process of filtering all this out. And finally they settled on this. But we can be assured that the Holy Spirit didn't leave the church without guidance, and he worked through this. The problem is this, folks, and we, we broached this back in the Old Testament. And if you'll think, when you get into these issues of church authority, here's a, here's a way of thinking through to help you think this through. If you will set the church aside for a minute, just set it aside, and go back to the Old Testament and think to yourself, who brought the Old Testament text into existence? came out of the nation, Israel, right? But once the texts were brought into historic existence, was Israel above the text in authority or below it? Below it. Because once, no matter how the text came about, doesn't imply that that channel through which the text came is authoritative over the text. It just means that Israel was a conduit for the Old Testament. And once the Old Testament was written, they had to obey it. Can any of you think, uh, and we've got to call it quits here, but can any of you think of one passage that is so crystal clear in the New Testament that once somebody writes Scripture, the somebody 
is subservient to his own scripture. Anybody think of a text? It's a text that involves the word anathema. Cursing. It's Galatians 1. And Paul says, Though I or an angel from heaven come and teach you another gospel than that which you have heard, let him be damned. Now he's saying that for himself. He says, once I had that revelation and it got inscripturated, I can't change it. And I'm under that authority. So the tendency has been in church history to argue the other way. To say, well, Mother Church gave us the scripture. So it must be Mother Church that's an authority over the scripture. That's not, that's not valid logic. Because if you can say that way, what do you do with the Old Testament? You're certainly not going to argue that Israel had higher authority than the Old Testament text. Okay. The early church. Different people in different councils. That's right. They all disappeared. But the writings were, the writings were saved and copied out of those. That, that's the miracle of the Holy Spirit's preserving Scripture. That's right. All those churches died. No. Paul was the one that gave us the Scripture. The early church circulated the text. Oh, the recognized the canon or gave us the canon? Recognized. Recognized. That was recognized over several centuries, which we're going to get into. Yeah. Okay.